Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend El Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Psachim, daf tzadi, vav, page 96. Before we get going, we just want to acknowledge that the day of the release of this episode is Tanita Ster, Tanis Esther, and because of the way the days fall out this year, we got a whole lot of Purim coming up, uh, right? That tonight is supposed to be the reading of the Megillah for everybody, including the Jerusalemites uh, who usually read the next day. So tonight and tomorrow is the Megillah. And then that's it for Purim if you don't live in Jerusalem. But if you do, Purim continues through Sunday. And the Mishloch Manot and the Purim Suda is Sunday. So you will be hearing good Freilichen Purim, Purim Sameach wishes from us for a few days. I'm going well, to start at least with... from you. I'm, I'm, I'm one and done. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Fine. Um, I'm going to... Um, we have two Mishnayot on the stuff. And I'm going to start with the first one. Your Danny will take the second one. Ma ben Pesach Mitzrayim le Pesach Dorot. I feel with this Mishnah, we begin the conversation that's really going to continue into the 10th parak. For anybody who knows anybody who has fallen off the derech and is not reading the daf with us these days because there's just been too much Garban Pesach, note that the 10th parak is coming up, and that's where we get a lot of the the connection to the Pesach that we experience, Seder and so on. Maben Pesach Mitzrayim Pesach Dorot. What is the difference or the differences between Pesach Mitzrayim, the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus, and the Pesach, the holiday of Passover for the generations? Pesach, and in this case, of course, we're talking specifically still about the Garden Pesach. Pesach Mitzrayim mikacho umi basur v'ta'un hazaah ba'agudot aizov so first of all, the Mishnah gives us a little bit of an outline over the Korban Pesach, right? I'm sorry, over the Pesach Mitzrayim, right? The original one, where that's what happened. That the Bnei Israel were supposed to, they offered it in Egypt, and they're going out on the 10th of the month of Nisan, meaning they're not on the 14th, they're on the 10th, and they have to sprinkle the blood, and they have to take their Izov, that's hyssop, and they have to, um, you know, this is what they sprinkle on the on the doorpost and on the lintel, and they eat it all very quickly because they're rushing to get out. So this is the historical story that you know from from the Pesach Seder, and you know it from the Book of Exodus, right? This is the story, and maybe you know it from the Prince of Egypt, right? Meaning there's plenty of ways to characterize the actual Exodus from Egypt, as compared to Pesach Dorot, Noheg Kol Shiva, which is such a such a brief contrast to the long description about the original Pesach. Pesach Dorot, what is it? Is that you have the Korban Pesach, you would observe it for seven days, meaning the holiday of Passover that we know that in its original form was seven days. Now, of course, it's eight days if you're in the diaspora because of the the second day um, of Yantif Shilgoliot, right? The idea that there's a, oh, we'll talk about this when we get to Pesach or Rosh Hashanah, whatever. And I guess Beitzah, but the idea here is that the historical event is transformed into a holiday. And that is what this mission acknowledges. And, you know, as we all know it, but here it is in writing. And the Gemara comes to say, where do we know this from? Right? Meaning it's very nice that we all know it, but how do we know this? Manalan, where does it come from that we know what the requirements are? The Torah itself tells us how to keep this holiday. This whole business of 
the idea that you they're leaving on the tenth of Nisan and that this is the way they're going to take it um, for the leaving Egypt that they're going to take a korban each for the household um, is specific to the historical event. We don't have the idea of the korban being taken on the, from the beginning on the tenth of Nisan. That's just not the way we keep the holiday of Pesach. And then the Gemara has some uh, some questions on this. The Gemara says, well, if you're going to say that you do it on the 14th of the month, this also, or here also, you would have some kind of like preparation of your animal four days before the Shita, which will bring you back to the 10th. And isn't that the historical date? So it doesn't, and no other offering, no other korban is going to have that kind of check, you know, four days before the shechita. So the idea is that maybe there is more that we could line up between the Pesach Dorot and Pesach Yitrayim that we might really have thought. And then, and with this, I'm going to hand it over to you, Dana, but basically the answer here is a breita that comes in the name of Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag is a name that you may recognize from Perkei Avot. He's not quoted that often, I would say. Um, ben Bag Omer, Minayin Latamid, Shetaun Bikor Abaria Mim Kodam Shrita. How do you know that the Korban Tamid, meaning the everyday daily uh, Korban, needs to be checked four days before the before it is slaughtered? Shneamar, we have a verse, Tishmarula Akriv Liba Moado. We have a verse from Sefer Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, chapter 28, that says it. You will, basically, says you will check. You will. Uh, guard to, before you come to offer me in me the korban in its time. And it says specifically that that safeguard is going to last until the 14th day of the month. That verse is from Shmot Yudbet, chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. There's a certain amount of checking that has to take place to make sure that this animal is fit to be the korban for the korban Pesach. And, you know, this is, it, it lines up the Pesach Dorot with Pesach Mitzrayim in a, I would say, really in a in a more artificial kind of way. And of course, the Gemara concludes here, that's different. Those are different cases. The idea of the safeguard four days in advance is still not the same kind of thing as the actual leaving on the 10th. Um, and Basically, the idea that it says Tishmuru, that's the verse that says you should safeguard it, you know, that's that's the that ends up being the connector between the two carbonot. Um, uh, yeah, just I want to say that the connector between the two carbonot, both the Tamid and the carbon Pasach, which is then the Gemara goes on to discuss it in much, much, much greater detail with. All of you know again, all of the details that link this exactly how we do it, how we do it. Look, I'm fascinated by this topic. That sort of the idea that the first Pesach that was celebrated sort of had its own uh, set of rules or way that it was actually done. You know, it makes sense that it was really sort of like a, a point in time, the actual real time of doing it, and then you sort of have the Pesach Ledorot, which is the way that it's going to really be, be memorialized forever. Um, I'm sure there's something very insightful to say about the difference between experience and then the memorialization of experience. Is that a word? If it isn't, I just made it up. Um, but sort of like con contrasting those two things, right? Like 
what did the Pesach need to be like for those who needed the Pesach undergoing actual Yitziat Mitzrayim? And what is Pesach like for us who are just remembering that experience? But one of the themes of the Haggadah is always about, you know, thinking about that, like we were in that door itself, that we were part of that miracle itself. So the fact that there are differences almost goes against what type of experience we're trying to recreate um, at the Seder, right? When we think about Leil HaSeder, that it's, we're supposed to view ourselves as if we actually went through that experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and yet that Korban Pesach is not the same experience. So I would say also that, and we've mentioned this before, of course, that you know when, when we relate to the Korban Pesach of the Pesach Dorot, right, the holiday Korban Pesach, as compared to the Korban Pesach that was offered on the first night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, I have to say there is, a, I, I ha, might even have more affinity or more connection or more familiarity with the Mitzrayim, with the Egypt one, because we have that in the Chumash and we have that, we tell it in the Haggadah and, and it's the narrative of it that we, you know, it, it resonates and it's, and it's part of the way we experience the holiday. The experience of the Korban Pesach in the form of the Afikomen, right? The idea that we, commemorate the the sacrifice the temple sacrifice that we no longer have is more distant in terms of my experience of the holiday so i think that the idea that this is the one that's for the generations and this is the one that's the original kind of ends up being conflated in our modern experience in the absence of the beta mcdash but uh, yeah i would agree i think that's sort of uh, an interesting point also that you know us not being able to do the korban pesach at all really separates us from some of what's trying to be recreated on Pesach itself. Um, I'm going to jump down now to the second Mishnah, which really brings up a very interesting halachic scenario. Um, in Vayikra, in Perk Havzayin Pasigod, chapter 27, verse 10, there's a specific law that basically says you're not allowed to substitute an alternate animal for an animal that was already consecrated as an offering. So if you designated a particular cow to be brought as a korban, you can now say, you know what, I decided I'm going to take another cow. But the Torah does say, but if you did do this, if you did sort of designate a substitute, right, the first animal doesn't lose its kadusha or its hegde status. Um, and you end up also consecrating that second animal. So in other words, you end up with two animals that are both consecrated. So now they're going to sort of relate this to what does this mean for a situation with the Korban Pesach? I'm a Rabbi Yeshua. So Rabbi Yeshua says, Shamati shed Tmurat Pesach Kriva. I heard from my teachers, right, that this Tmurat Pesach, the substitute Pesach, is offered. It's going to be offered as a Korban Shlemen. Utmurat Pesach Kriva. And sometimes the substitute Pesach is not offered as a Shlemen. And I can't explain which one. So again, this is interesting because I think the shows sort of, you know, this removal from the time period of giving korbanot, right? Rabbi Yeshua is not living at the time when korbanot are being given. He has this particular halakha. He's not quite sure how to explain it. And then who comes along? Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva is really one of his students. They're not necessarily on equal footing. I'm a Rabbi Akiva. He says, I'm going to explain it to you. And it's interesting that Rabbi Akiva here, if you look in the language, he's not saying, oh, I heard this from another teacher. He's just like, no, I can figure this out for you. And so he says the following. So what they're referring to is basically this type of case. Let's say you have an animal that was designated to be a Korban Pesach and it gets lost beforehand. 
And so therefore you designate a second animal, right? And then the original animal is actually found. So that's what the distinction here has to do with. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's brought as a korban and sometimes it isn't. So if the korban Pesach, in other words, that original korban Pesach is found before the slaughter of the, kor- of the replacement korban Pesach, so the original one is basically left out to graze until it gets a blemish. And it's, it's sold. Um, you sell it and then you basically just take the money from it and you're going to bring a korban shlamim at some point. So in other words, everything about it, the money itself that you would get from that animal, all of it remains dedicated to some type of service and you're going to bring a korban shlamim with it. The chayn temurato. And this is also true with its substitute. substitute. Let's say the original Pesach was found and, you know, after the slaughter of this, of the replacement Pesach, right? Then the second one is going to be offered as a Shlamin. And this is also the rule with with its substitute. So in other words, the idea is that in the second case, since the original Pesach wasn't around to be slaughtered, at the proper time, right? It never actually became a Pesach. And so it wasn't really actually like rejected or anything like that. And that's why you're just going to actually bring it as a Shlomim. And this is also true for it's for even that substitute. Like, let's say for some reason you ended up having a third one in the chain. So it's very interesting to see. And then what the Gemara does here, which I also thought was interesting is, is the it pays very close attention to the language of Rabbi Akiva, right? Rabbi Akiva uses kodem shchita, right? And also this category of achar shchita ha-pesach, right? It's really the time of the slaughter, the action of the slaughter itself. And so therefore it says, itmar, Rabbi amar kodem shchita achar shchita shanina. So Rabbi is saying, you know, it teaches in the Mishnah this actual term of shchita, of the actual slaughter itself. And this is to be understood literally. Rabbi Zer- and right, as opposed to Rabbi Zera amar, Right, Rabbi Zera says, Kodem chatzot, chatzot shanina. Rabbi Zera says, no, we learned in a different Mishnah, right? We maybe somewhere else he has a different tradition that it's not about the time of slaughter, it's the time when slaughtering is permitted, which is any time after chatzot. So it's not based on action, like what action are you up to with the Korban? It just has to do with what time you're up to on Arab Pesach. And that's Rabbi Zera's view. So the Gemara basically asks, Ula Rabbi Zera. So then according to Rabbi Zera, how can you have this language here in the Mishnah of Kodem And so the Gemara answers, Right? So the Gemara says, okay, Rabbi Zera would just say that it means before the time of the Shrita. But no, the Gemara is actually going to say that this language difference is actually important. Right? It's actually, this is a machlokas between the Tanayim. Right? the Pesach that was found before the actual slaughter itself of the replacement is just left to graze. But if it's after the replacement, it's going to be offered as a Shlomim itself. So again, just to be clear, um, you know, that uh, in the first case, you leave it to graze and then you're going to buy money to buy a different animal to be the Shlomim. But in the second one, it just becomes a Shlomim itself. Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Kodem Chatzot Rabbi Eliezer, he uses the word Chatzot. And right, so if it's before chatzot, you leave it to grace. After chatzot, you're going to leave it as a, uh, you're going to leave it as a, uh, you're going to offer it as an actual shlaman. So, uh, you know, 
the Mishnah is interesting because I think it's great how Rabbi Akiva sort of solves this for Rabbi Yoshua, not by quoting any Messorah he has, but almost by doing it through logic, right? Like he's like, no, no, I can find you the two halakhic scenarios, even though I know you weren't sure exactly how to explain. And it's pretty bold on Rabbi Akiva's part, I think, to say that to Rabbi Yoshua. And then the Gemara here gives this very nice close read of really paying attention to the word shchita and that this machlokas between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer is really predicated on is the action of what you're doing with the Korban Pesach important or is it just the timing of when you find it? And, and, and that you know, difference is going to be reflected in the language itself. And actually, Rabbi Eliezer, obviously, it's a much longer length of time where some of these things would make a difference, whereas Rabbi Akiva, it's like up to the moment of Shrita itself. So this may happen two hours after Chatzot or something like that. So this brings up something that I've been thinking about for a long time here, the the degree to which all of this is formalized and the degree to which it ends up being personalized, depending on the given the given case of that moment, right? The So much of this is like, this is the way it must be done. And then there's so many different tweaks along the way. And it's a much bigger topic, but it just kind of fed into that since I've been thinking about it anyway. I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up. And it almost wants me to go back to many of the halachot we learned about and see, like, is it reflective of an individual experience, which seems to be Rabbi Akiva's opinion here, or is it more about the communal experience, uh, which is what Rabbi, you know, Rabbi Eliezer's opinion seems to be here. Um, so that's an interesting framing. We'll have to keep thinking about that. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rikus Review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.